I'm Matt Pikin, the arts producer with Blue Ridge Public Radio. On a recent weekday afternoon, I asked people in Asheville's Pack Square how they define the arts. I think that arts is people figuring out new ways to think about how we interact with the world. I would define the arts as an expression of what it's to be human. I'm thinking about drawings and pictures and culture and stuff like that. I think that arts can encompass anything from like, you know, traditional painting and sculpture art to performance art and street art, graffiti, more alternative forms of art. So I think it really encompasses everything. The arts are everywhere and is the enhancement to the life that's all around us. Artists color our communities, bring creative thinking to challenges and issues, and expand our understanding of the world. But quantifying that impact, showing the value artists contribute, is often difficult beyond economics and hard numbers. Many in the arts struggle to sell their work or simply work in ways that isn't sellable. Because of that, even before the pandemic, economic instability was an everyday reality for many with careers in the arts. This is BPR News Presents The Porch. Today we explore this question. If we all benefit from the work and presence of artists, what is our collective responsibility to publicly fund the arts? Over the next hour, you'll hear about the funding for nonprofit arts organizations here and elsewhere, some of the challenges common to artists in Western North Carolina, and expand the bounds of how you might see the arts contributing to your community. For centuries, the arts were seen as expressions of ideas, a painter or composer or writer or playwright or choreographer making work, sometimes with other people, and presenting it to passive audiences. But over the past half century, many in the arts have created work to engage their communities and a broader public. The arts can map our history, such as a project marking the African-American music trails of eastern North Carolina. I didn't have to read this. I lived it, you see. So I have first-hand knowledge. So while I'm alive and I can tell the story, I tell the story. A book about the African-American music trails is a roadmap for visitors featuring interviews with more than 90 musicians spanning jazz, R&B, funk, gospel, hymns, blues, rap, marching bands, and beach music. The arts can be the theatrical work Ezel, Ballad of a Landman, which illustrates the collision of the extractive resource industry and intergenerational trauma. I tell them I'm Ezel Parsons. I'm here representing the Lexington Oil and Mineral Futures, Inc., and I'm here to talk to you about your land. The show is rooted in Kentucky, but the creator, Bob Martin, has toured it all over the country. Performances of Ezel, Ballad of a Landman, also include nature walks, a shared meal, and dialogue. The arts can be an artist working with police and fire departments, as detailed in this report from South Carolina Public Radio. The celebration of the opening of Seeing Spartanburg in a New Light. Nine public art installations were unveiled across the city with the purpose of building relationships between police and neighborhoods through a collaborative... Disruptive art happened this past year through the lens of Richmond, Virginia's graffiti-covered Confederate monuments, transforming a towering reminder of our nation's racist origins into a space for community gathering. A lot of people say this is vandalism. I say it's art. You know, that statue represents... It represents slavery. And even when... Nationally, the latest study from Americans for the Arts found the nonprofit arts industry supports 4.5 million jobs and generates $27.5 billion in revenue back to local, state, and federal governments. That's more than five times what the nonprofit arts industry receives in government allocations.
Speaking of which, before we go further, here's a very short quiz. In dollars and cents, how much of your state income tax dollars every year do you believe go toward the arts? I've never thought about it in a per capita. That is a fantastic question. I have no idea, to be quite honest. Maybe a few hundred dollars. Less than $2,500. Let's say 10 bucks a person. In between $500 and $1,500. I'll say $25 a year. Less than $100 annually. Per annum, I would guess we're probably paying something on the order of five cents. The answer? 77 cents per year. 77 cents. Wow, that's crazy. That's insane. Ouch. Like, what, what matters to a community? I think that's incredibly low. I would like to see it at least 10 times that. Perhaps even more stunning, even at just 77 cents. North Carolina ranks 22nd in the nation in per capita arts funding, with only pennies separating about a dozen states in the middle. All those fractions of individual taxes go to the North Carolina Arts Council. The State Arts Council grants just under $6.5 million each year directly to artists and organizations and to the state's 100 regional arts councils, which in turn grant money to artists and organizations in their regions. These grants range from as little as several hundred dollars to individual artists to tens of thousands of dollars to the largest arts organizations. Nate McGacky is the executive director of Arts NC, the state's arts advocacy agency. He's here to give us a little perspective on arts funding from the state. The Arts Council infrastructure in North Carolina is more robust than in many other states, particularly in the Southeast. From a funding standpoint, I think that we do really well for where we are nationally. Nationally, we rank in terms of per capita art spending. We're about 24th, which is not high. But if you look at a listing of total state budget per capita spending, we're number 49. So by comparison to that, we actually rank pretty high in terms of arts funding at the state level. So arts funding from the state comes entirely from legislators. And you recently hosted Arts Day, an annual event in which you and other arts advocates from around the state are lobbying legislators about the value of the arts. I know you were waging a campaign asking legislators to raise the per capita spending on the arts to $1. Tell me what you're asking for this year. So right now we're about $6.3, $6.4 million in recurring arts grants through the North Carolina Arts Council. How do we get that to a reasonable amount of a dollar per person, right? Which would, I think right now would be about $10.5 million. So that became our initiative because it was the idea that we needed something simple that people could remember. But yet at the same time, there were some very real needs and some very real uses for those dollars as well. So that was our message for a while. Admittedly, Dollar for the Arts sort of got set to the side last March, and we became very much focused on the pandemic, obviously. Our ask to the General Assembly this year is a program called Restart the Arts, $8 million non-recurring allocation to $4 million in each of the next two years of the biennium, specifically for funding to restart arts programming for the public. Dollar for the Arts has not gone away. We still think that it is a reasonable goal. And I think we'd like to see that at the federal level as well, where I think it's closer to 65 cents or something per capita. Just to be clear, that $8 million over two years that you're asking for is in addition to regular biennial funding. Absolutely. So that would be in addition to the annual, I think it's $6.3 or $6.4 million um, that, that the Arts Council gives out in grants each year. 
between the surplus that the state has and what would be a relatively nominal uh, increase to get to $1 per capita. Both of these would depend on the legislature to be sympathetic to these things. What kind of feedback were your advocates hearing or what's your insight into the realism and challenges to make these things happen? I think that there's a willingness to invest in the arts. I mean, yes, you could certainly say that, you know, within the scope of the state budget, you could, you know, increase this by 40, 50%. But, you know, I think legislators, obviously, they're not just working for the arts. You know, that's, I'm, I'm just working for the arts, but legislators have to consider the entire state budget. And a state budget can only realistically grow without new sources of revenue within the framework. So, while certainly we want to see a, a greater investment in the arts, a lot of what we hear back from legislators is, yes, we hear what you're asking for. We understand that reasoning. We're going to continue to invest. And I think in this moment with Restart, we're, we're seeing significant investments. And I would say that even prior to that in funding that we got, say, in the 2019 budget, the increased investment coming into the arts was outpacing maybe the overall increase of budget spending across the state government. However, even though with that outpacing, it's not taking us to a 60% increase up to the dollar for arts that we we're asking for. So it just takes time to build these things up over time, unless, of course, you find a new revenue stream. That was Nate McGacky, Executive Director of Arts NC. We'll come back to him in a little bit, but here's a little more context on where we sit in state allocations devoted to the arts. These numbers fluctuate year to year, but here are some comparisons elsewhere. South Carolina taxpayers are each giving 84 cents in their state income taxes to the arts. Georgia, just 14 cents each year per taxpayer. Arizona is the nation's only state in which not a single penny from taxpayers is steered to the arts. By the way, if North Carolina did achieve $1 in per capita spending on the arts, that would lift the state to 17th in the country. So which state is number one? It's not New York or California. It's Minnesota. This year, that state is funneling $6.37 per taxpayer to arts and culture, more than $30 million a year in total. That's because in 2008, Minnesota voters approved a sales tax increase, three-eighths of a cent on every dollar of purchases. It may not sound like much, but the tax brings in more than $300 million every year. Arts and culture organizations and initiatives get close to 20% of that, with the rest earmarked for the outdoors, clean water and parks and trails. What's unique about this tax is Minnesota voters amended the state constitution by approving it, meaning it can't legally be taken away or diverted to other uses by the legislature. It's in effect for 25 years or until 2034, and this money is in addition to normal arts funding every year. You might be asking, who dreamed up this funding mechanism? To find out, I spoke with one of the architects of that referendum, Sheila Smith, who recently retired as the director director of the advocacy organization, Minnesota Citizens for the Arts. I started by asking how this odd coalition between advocates for the arts, outdoors, clean water, and parks and trails came about. Yeah, so a lot of ups and downs, six legislative sessions, various formats of coalition and fighting and coming to common understandings over six years. So. The original idea was brought forward by the hunting community who wanted to use current revenues from the state sales tax 
and dedicate that to land preservation. So there would be a good land for animals to live on so that they could be hunted. And they're only 17% of the Minnesota population hunt. And so they couldn't get a hearing. They just didn't have a big enough coalition. And the lead author at that time was complaining that he couldn't get a hearing. And so he was talking to Senator Richard Cohen, who was then chair of the finance committee and a good supporter of the arts. And he said, well, you know, why should we have a hearing to dedicate sales tax to your hobby? I'm interested in the arts and culture. You put the arts on there, I'll, I'll hear it. And of course, they all went nuts and hating that idea. But the author of the bill lives in a small town with an active arts community. And he understood that when there's a play going on in town, all the restaurants are full. It's good for town to have an active arts community in the same way it's good for town to be a draw for hunters and anglers in season because they're in the restaurants and bars too. So he said, okay, let's do it. So they put it on the bill and much to everyone's shock, it passed and then shot like a rocket to the Senate floor through a couple committees. And it showed the power of this very strange collection of issues that pretty much everyone on the committee had a reason to vote for it. So if you were a very conservative gun owner, member of the NRA, a hunting and angling kind of guy, you liked it because you've been trying to do this for a long time. If you were a greater Minnesota arts and culture supporter, you had a reason to support it. If you're a metro person who values the environment and the arts, then you had a reason to support it. So from there, there was a natural expansion of interest from just hunting and and anglers to also include the environmentals, as you would think of as the greens who want to preserve land, air and water. And then a natural expansion to parks and trails. And then the clean water people came in, too. So by the end of six years... Lots of fighting over who's in, who's out. The change of power in the legislature from Republican to Democrat and back again throughout this six-year process. So it was really chaotic and took forever. And there were a million battles and it was super fun because it was so unlikely a thing because even we pushing for it weren't quite convinced it was going to work. How did you get around or how did, if not you personally, but how did this amendment get around the anti-tax ethos of modern day Republicanism? Well, I, I would think it's it's more of a complicated story than that. You know, people love to simplify politics. It's black and white, but there's so much gray. The arts are a bipartisan issue, as is the outdoors. And people have their different reasons for supporting or opposing things. The anti-tax sentiment is just one sentiment among many. But I will say that in the end, the final, 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 final passage after six years of back and forth, and I'm not even going to go into it all, did hinge on whether the dedication of sales tax dollars was from current revenue and therefore it would be taken away from other interests or would it come from new revenue? And the final passage of it, I think, hinged on the idea that there were a lot of Republican folks who thought it probably wasn't going to pass. But at the same time, they had so many supporters of it that, well, let's let the people decide whether their taxes get raised. What changed once this did pass statewide voting in terms of the advocating around the arts? Well, we did two things. One was to ensure that we were always telling legislators how the funding was getting into their own communities in their own districts to really localize the information so that they understood it had a direct benefit to them and their constituents. And then the second piece was to document impact so that we would have documented evidence as time passed as to what the impact had been. Were there any new programs, anything that didn't exist before the Legacy Amendment that has been created because this was passed? Previous to the passage of the Legacy Amendment, you might have had an artist who did certain projects 
of a certain kind in a certain area. Then they got access to grants. They had a rising demand for whatever it is they were doing, whether it's classes for kids or whatever. So they applied for grants and they were able to grow and hire a staffer, apply for a C3, become a C3, hire more staff, serve more kids and so on over the last 12 years. But the whole world is a different place from when this passed. For example, individual artists now have a lot more opportunity to market their work online. And so you have Springboard for the Arts, which has simultaneously been growing over those over that time, providing more and more courses in how to make a living as an artist, how to do your taxes, how to do your finances, how to market yourself. So there's a growing sophistication on the part of artists about all of those things because of Springboard for the Arts, Springboard for the Arts, and these programs are funded by the legacy dollars. It's all an ecosystem that's being fed. It's not one thing. How can other states use what happened in Minnesota as a model to replicate? There have been different variations of this work done in other states. For example, the state of Washington passed a law that allows each county to hold a vote to see if they want to dedicate dollars to arts and culture. And so they're just getting started on having the county referendums. So that's a version. Cuyahoga County in Ohio passed one where they dedicated the sales tax from cigarettes to the arts and culture. And they're getting like $22 million a year just off cigarettes. One of the great models is the Denver Arts and Culture Heritage Trust, which was a collaboration between the arts and culture and zoos and some other entities. And it goes to the people as a referendum periodically. I think the arts and culture should attempt public referendums more often. Americans for the Arts keeps track of things like public referendums for the arts and culture, and they have shown that 90% of the proposals do pass. The public referendum is the important thing. What does the package exactly look like? It's going to vary depending on where you are. But the idea is what opportunities in any state or city or county for a public referendum are there? Give that a try. Sheila Smith recently retired as the director of Minnesota Citizens for the Arts. North Carolina isn't new to the notion of a collaborative referendum. Arts advocates in Mecklenburg County have twice brought proposals to voters, most recently in 2019. The big topic today, the sales tax increase vote for Mecklenburg County. Yeah, that money would fund the arts and parks programs, but opposers say the county has more pressing issues to deal with. It turns out the opposers prevailed at the polls with 57% of the votes against the tax hike. NBC Charlotte's Rad Berkey has been... Let's turn back to Nate McGill. Of Arts NC. I asked if he and his colleagues in arts advocacy had worked at building the kind of coalitions across different interest groups that could lead to a successful referendum in North Carolina. I had reached out to a few colleagues to have the conversation, and the sense was is that there probably was not in North Carolina in this moment an appetite for a tax increase, certainly not a, a sales tax increase, which made it very difficult to kind of think to what that next step is. I keep wanting to see something happen where it's a direct ask to voters. And if it can't happen in Charlotte, I wonder, can it happen anywhere? Does that make you and your colleagues gun shy to try to craft something that would be a a direct proposition to voters to go up to a dollar or something, whatever the ask would be? I would say that, to your point, the state is not right for a proposition around arts funding in this moment. Certainly, you know, a similar proposition failing in Charlotte, which many people thought that that would pass, and then to have it fail twice, I think is telling that that would be 
a much harder thing on a statewide campaign. So at the moment, we deal within the government structure we have, and we make the case to our legislators, because in the state of North Carolina, as is with many states and the federal government, the power of the purse resides in the legislative branch. And certainly we have those conversations with folks who are representative of every single district, whether or not it's urban or rural, whether or not they have an R, an I, or a D next to their name. And honestly, all of those conversations, generally speaking, are the same. There are philosophical differences within the parties about the role of government. But in my experience, we have seen a broad support for arts funding on both sides of the aisle. I think that the change we've seen at the General Assembly is in the last 10 years, we've seen more of a focus on arts in rural communities. There certainly has been a greater appetite to increase funding that is distributed on a per capita basis to ensure that all 100 counties are getting a equitable amount of funding. The grassroots funding that goes out to all 100 counties actually has increased as well as funding initiatives for touring into rural areas. But we have not seen as much willingness to increase funding for those programs. The majority of that program funding goes to urban areas. We've seen less willingness to invest more dollars there. In Western North Carolina, outside of Asheville, a lot of rural areas. Why do you think that's happened? You know, you want to fund what you see. And there are more rural legislators who are in positions of power just because of the nature of politics. There are more Republicans that are from rural areas. So they might not have an art museum or a a performing arts center. So the arts in their community are important. They probably have an arts council and they have several nonprofits that do really great work and they see that, but they don't have these larger institutions. So when you're talking about having access to those institutions, they don't feel as connected to it because it's not sitting within their borders. The point that we try to make with them is that all of those larger arts organizations that might be in Asheville have a reach to many of the surrounding counties. I know that uh, Diana Wortham or Asheville Art Museum is bringing in folks from not only outside counties, but other states and, and from all over the world. So that's part of the message that we're trying to get across is that while the building and the institution might not receive mail in your district, that the people from your district are still coming to experience those things. And also that a lot of those major, most of those major institutions are doing outreach into the surrounding counties to make sure that they're servicing their region and not just folks that happen to live within there. We turn our conversation to rural arts funding and programming when we return after this short break. I'm Matt Pikin, and you're listening to The Porch on BPR News.